following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. Uh, this is session number eight. Oh man, I was just noticing on my title slide here. I still have it. I'm still calling it section number session number six. No, this is. Session number eight uh, of Sauron Defeated. I got the date right, but not the session number. Um, and our second session on the Notion Club papers. Uh, so, uh, that We're kind of entering into deep waters here tonight. Uh, this is, for my money, the hardest part of the Notion Club papers. Um, so, and let me tell you in advance that I don't promise to have all the answers to every question uh, that you might have about this section. I'm, you know, I'm all sort of um, uh, struggle our way, you know, my way through this with you and see if we can, you know, help to sort of understand it uh, more clearly. Uh, but, um, but yeah, <laughs> Kimber, I was thinking the same thing. Kimber says after our big, uh, exploring the Lord of the Rings discussion of spiritual bowlers, uh, he laughed out loud when tonight's text brought up spiritual meteors. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wasn't going to go there, Kimber, but I'm glad you brought that up, uh, because absolutely clearly relevant, clearly relevant. Um, anyway, <laughs> Um, okay, so um, quick, first, uh, a couple quick announcements uh, before we get too deep in, and then a little bit of preamble, and then we'll jump into the text. So uh, first, um, just a, a few simple announcements. Uh, we have we've been running a um, uh, we've been running a special an anytime audit promotion on. Um, uh, our Harry Potter class in celebration leading up to uh, Harry's birthday, which is, of course, today. Uh, so today is the last day. So we only have uh, uh, like a couple hours, uh, I think, uh, left to for people who wanted to get in on the special promo price for our Harry Potter course um, uh, uh, taught by the wonderful Amy Sturgis. Uh, so that's uh, awesome class. Last chance to get it at its uh, promo uh, price. So, uh, yeah. Happy birthday, Harry. Exactly. Um Second, uh, tomorrow night, uh, we are having a special session of the Silmarillion Film Project, a special in the sense that it's out of sequence. Normally, we just had one last week. Normally, we would have one again two, you know, next Thursday. We have them every other week. Uh, we, we move that one up to today, or tomorrow, rather. Uh, that is, this, this week. Uh, so that, so again, just a, a reminder that film film is happening again uh, tomorrow night, um, and then it won't happen for three weeks after that, as uh, well we sort of resume uh, the regular schedule. Um, so, um, uh, so don't forget that that's happening tomorrow night, 10 p.m. You can see it on our Twitch channel or on our regular film uh, uh, film um, go to webinar session. Um, and the reason that we shifted uh, the um, some film session from next week to this week is in order to accommodate finally being able to hold our Mythgard Movie Club discussion of the musical Camelot uh, as we look at that 20th, that classic 20th century Arthurian interpretation and adaptation, um, which has been postponed twice, uh, our, our, our star-crossed Mythgard Movie Club session, uh, uh, which I am happy to accommodate. So that's going to be on the 8th, so next Thursday, week tomorrow week uh, at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. 
will be our discussion of Camelot. So those of you uh, who uh, you know enjoyed our Mallory discussions may be interested to uh, uh, discuss some of these uh, modern adaptations. So, uh, and uh, that's uh, that's that's it. That's it for new announcements here tonight. Um, very good. Okay, so last preamble I want to give before we jump into the text here. Here I want to be even more... Well, okay. I want to be cautious, but I'm going to say it anyway. All right. One of the things I have to say, reading this section of the Notion Club papers this week uh, was a kind of revelation to me, really. Um, I've read this several times. I've taught class on this uh, several times before. This section never really struck me as forcefully as it did this time because of the way in which we are coming to this in the chronological sequence. Having spent all the time that we have been spending over the last few years watching Tolkien's writing process, um, the things that we have learned together during our discussions, especially during the history of the Lord of the Rings section of the history of Middle-earth, but even before that as well, but again, especially uh, in the history of the Lord of the Rings stuff that we just finished, you know, I I have been, you know, I, I've therefore come to this text with, you know, sort of my mind full of all of the observations we have been making about Tolkien's own creative process, the, the kind, you know, what we've seen in that. And this passage struck me, you know, this, this whole section struck me in ways, again, as I said, that it never has before. You'll remember when we talked about The Lost Road. Um, not just the volume of the History of Middle-earth called The Lost Road, Volume 5 of the History of Middle-earth, but specifically the story, The Lost Road, the unfinished beginnings of his time travel novel that he, he began, you know, in uh, the, you know, the, 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 the time travel novel that was meant to correspond to C.S. Lewis's space travel novel, which, of course, was Out of the Silent Planet. Um, when we talked about that, one of the things that I said about that, I said, although we have to be cautious in applying the things that Tolkien says in that novel too simply, too simplistically, autobiographically, it's very difficult to avoid the fact that it really feels like we're reading something close to, autobiogra to autobiography, not like historically speaking. That is, not that he's talking about the events of his life, but as far as his own internal process is concerned. Um, it is very, very... You know, I said at the time um, that story, The Lost Road, is one of two places that I have... You know, as much as I, in general, as you guys know, tend to resist trying to just be autobiographical of saying like, ah, like, you know, now we see exactly how Tolkien, like he is telling us all about how he himself thinks we are learning something about, you know, Tolkien, the man in not, and not instead of just reading the story that we're, I mean, you know, that that's not my preferred mode of reading. Um, and I'm very cautious about doing that. But I remember saying at the time in the Lost Road discussion that it is very hard to avoid that when reading the Lost Road, just as it's very hard to avoid it when reading Leaf by Niggle. Those are the two moments. To a lesser extent, Smith of Wooten Major, but, uh, but especially Leaf by Niggle and the Lost Road, um, it is hard to avoid that sense that you are hearing... Uh, Tolkien talking about, you know, sort of sharing what it's like for him, 
right? Really kind of sharing something personal. And in particular, exactly, Mary, um, his discussion of languages. That's, of course, the particular element of The Lost Road um, that I'm referring to when I talk about autobiography there. Again, not, not, not events or anything like that, or even necessarily feelings, but his relationship with languages. The way that... Um, you know, the main character of The Lost Road describes language, you know, there's like the words just kind of coming to him and him having to figure out what they mean. And, um, you know, the way that he's getting these two, Elv you know, these two languages, right, and the relationships between them. Anyway, all that stuff seems to fit so well with the little, with the indirect things that we hear him saying and we see him doing elsewhere that it's very difficult to avoid the conclusion that here we, we are hearing him in the context of fiction sharing something direct, right? I had n that same sense, that sense of autobiography, that sense of Tolkien revealing something about how he thinks and how, like, the creative process works for him. Um, that had never struck me as forcibly with the Notion Club papers before. It's not that it, you know, I never thought of it at all before, but I wouldn't, I mean, I said at the time, there are two places, right? And I named those places as Leaf by Niggle and The Lost Road. Now, coming to this as we're doing, um, I would have to include the Notion Club papers in that as well. Here, I think we have to exercise even more caution about being simply autobiographical, about... Um, you know, we cannot simply say like, oh yeah, Raymer is Tolkien, like when he's having Raymer speak here. Just as I was suggesting that perhaps his critique of C.S. Lewis was being embodied in the character um, of Nicholas Guildford last time, um, you know, is he putting in the mouth of, of Raymer during this section something of his own experiences? Um, Again, I, I want to. We, we need to exercise even more caution here than before. It, it would be really, really simple uh, to get carried away and be, I think, um, irresponsible in how we did that. But at the same time, there are so many places where I can't avoid it, um, where the things that he says explicitly in cold prose here correspond so clearly to so many of the things that we have observed in actually looking at the drafts of his fiction, right? As we have seen the results of his mental processes unfolding, right, in his drafts and revisions and revisions, um, at hearing him talk about this and seeing the way that the th so many of the things that he's describing fit, at least in some senses, with what we see in his creative process, I have a really hard time avoiding it. And then, you know, sort of the capstone moment of all of this is when he... Um, brings in an element which we know for a fact to be autobiographical because he has revealed that explicitly autobiographically before. And I mean, of course, the vision of the wave. Uh, we'll get to that, hopefully, tonight. Um, but uh, anyway, also quick warning, no way I'm getting through all of today's reading. 0% chance of that. Uh, I, had, I had I had higher hopes when I originally made the schedule. I got like halfway through the reading that I assigned for today's class and I'm like, ah, no way. We need to take a little bit more time with this. This is this is dense stuff uh, that we need to uh, that we need to work on. Um, yeah, yeah. 
Um, Stephen, exactly. That is a really good way to, uh, a really good kind of caution, right, to issue at the beginning of this discussion. He does allow some of himself to enter into his characters, but that doesn't mean that every bit of the characters is him. Absolutely. Um, just because some of the things that Raymer says seem to be things which I cannot avoid the conclusion are Tolkien describing how things actually work for him in some ways, that doesn't mean that every, that like, Tolkien has had all of the experiences that Raymer is describing, you know, that this is like a, a thinly veiled autobiographical tell-all of Tolkien's own personal travels in time and space. Like, I, you know, that would be a great example of the kind of conclusion I would want very strongly to resist. Um, anyway, but yeah, absolutely. Okay, so without um, uh, further discussion, let's get into the text here. So, Raymer, you'll remember the first section of the text that we discussed last week started off as if it were simply a kind of a fun exercise that he wrote for the Inklings. Almost something like an extended inside joke, right? Um, a way of kind of couching his criticism of C.S. Lewis's space trilogy, in particular, um, in particular Perilandra. Um uh, well, and, and out of the silent planet, but especially Perilandra. Um, contextual, you know, uh, placing that within this sort of uh, pseudo-inklings discussion, which contains doubtless tons and tons of inside jokes, uh, which would have made it all very, like, fun and amusing. Um, it seemed like that was the kind of exercise that it started, and then I was, su- I was suggesting that the text at least reads as if the sudden turn that it takes at the end, right, the sudden turn that it takes at the end where all of a sudden Dolbear wakes up and accuses... Uh, sounds like he's a- initially accusing Raymer of plagiarism, but it turns out he's not accusing him of plagiarism. Uh, he's accusing him of faking the fact that this is fiction at all, right? That he actually has been to the place and that all he's faking is the bogus mechanism, right? There's a reason why the phony spaceship space travel, you know, machine in the literal and and the literary sense, uh, machine, uh, why that didn't fit with the rest of it. Because that bit Raymer tacked on in order to try to essentially disguise what was for him a real experience. So like this kind of bombshell that gets dropped at the end, right? That, okay, so real space travel has happened, but in a totally different mode that has nothing to do with spaceships. Um, uh, So that is, of course, a, a... an unexpected and very interesting follow-up to the whole literary discussion about that that space travel mechanism and its effects on the narrative that we focused on last time that the whole discussion was about in that first in that first section. So here is the the follow-up meeting the you know the next week when Raymer comes back and is going to tell them about what happened, right? So when he doesn't read a paper, he just makes a confession, right? He explains how the whole thing came about. Um and uh, uh, so anyway, he says, um, I never did write one. He's talking about his previous stories, that he was always interested in, you know, space travel stories. And uh, he, but he had never before written a story in which he had written a frame. So here he's addressing the clunky frame that he included in the story that he read at the previous meeting, the thing that Nicholas uh, Guildford objected to. So he says, I never did write one, said Raymer, because I was always bothered by the machinery in a literary sense, the way of getting there. 
I didn't necessarily object to machines, but I never met and couldn't think of any credible vehicle for the purpose. I really agree very much with Nicholas on that point. Well, you tried a pretty ordinary machine on us in that tale, said Frankly, and seemed pretty disgruntled with me for objecting to it, said Guildford. I was not really disgruntled, said Raymer, a bit put out, perhaps, as one is when one's disguise is pierced too quickly. Actually, I was interested in the way you all felt the discord, no more than I did myself. But I felt that I had to tell the story to somebody, to communicate it. I wanted to get it out. And yet, and yet now I'm rather sorry. Anyway, I put it in, I, I put in that quickly made, I put it, sorry, I put it, that is his story that he wanted to share and communicate. I put it in that quickly made cheap frame because I didn't want to discuss the way I came by it. At least not yet. But Ruthless Rufus, with his third degree, has landed me here. Yes, he has, said Dolbear, so get on with your confession. Okay. He had been wanting to share the story. Didn't want to actually tell the truth about how he came by the story. About how he came to experience what he is telling, which is a real story, not fiction. Right, and it's that's of course what ruthless Rufus, that's what Dolbear, uh, perceived in his sleep before, right? Um, so that that's how. So it, it was Dolbear who had the insight that that was the explanation for the disjunction. There was a reason that the frame, the travel mechanism, did not seem to fit um, with the. Uh, um, uh, with the actual story, right? So Raymer begins by openly confessing, yes, so it's true. The story is a true story. And the frame is a, is a fake frame and totally unsatisfactory. You're, you were completely right about that. I was hoping to pass it off just so that I could share the story. One thing, therefore, to draw from this that I think is going to be important when it comes, like, looking at the whole rest of it, for what's to come here. The importance to him, he felt that, I felt that I had to tell that story to somebody to communicate it. That need to share the story, right? That's, that's important. So let's just keep that in mind, right? As we move forward. Um, Tony, you're right that the tone of this whole section is, you know, Tony says it kind of sounds like, uh, the tone of it kind of sounds like, uh, reminds him of a conspiracy unmasked. Sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, the similarities between the hobbitry, right, in The Lord of the Rings, uh, the way that the hobbits are always uh, uh, ribbing each other and, and uh, uh, you know, making jokes at each other's expense and everything, it's not identical to, but quite similar to this, you know, the banter among the members of the Notion Club here. And that seems to me fairly revealing uh, and certainly autobiographically suggestive or biographically suggestive, right? In as much as we know explicitly that the Notion Club is kind of modeled on, if it's not modeled one-to-one -one on the members of the Inklings, as we discussed last time, it is certainly meant in spirit to sort of conjure up, uh, to kind of recreate the, the tone and feel of an Inklings meeting, right? 
Um, so yes, that, and, and, and so, so Tony, that, that, um, the conclusions that suggest themselves, right, about hobbitry and the way in which the hobbits relate to each other, uh, in the Lord of the Rings is fairly suggestive, right? Um, yeah, um, yeah, uh, Boomful, it, it is it is an interesting observation, right? That it kind of should be the other way around. That his claim of what really happened should be the thing that should be unbelievable, uh, and the fiction that was crafted um, should make sense, right? Should kind of work. I do think Boomful that it is interesting. The 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 lack. Now, he does not by any means suggest that all of the members of the Notion Club are like completely down with everything that Raymer says. Right? Um, there is there are skeptical looks and remarks made by the members of the Notion Club, but it is equally clear that the claims that Raymer is. The, the 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 claims made by Raymer are very remarkable, right? Um, and there is, at the very least, a very significant degree of patience shown to them, at the minimum, right? Um, and that seems to me an important observation to begin with, right? Uh, when thinking about the the context of Raymer's confession here uh, to the group. Um, yeah, Devora asks, do I think it's significant that Raymer's real mechanism is sleep and Dolbear is always sleeping and understanding everything? Do I think that that's significant? Yes. And Devora, of course, they come to tease him about that, right? You know, they come to make jokes about Dolbear's sleeping all the time during their meetings and, like, yet experiencing things and stuff. It's one of those things, Devora, which, like, sounds like a sounds like a joke at first, but, like, even as they're making the jokes, it's like, except it's it's not actually really completely a joke, right? They're, I mean, it's it, it it cannot be a coincidence, Devorah, right? It absolutely cannot be a coincidence that the one who perceived most clearly what was really happening here was the one who was asleep the whole time the story was being read, right? Um, what sounds like a sort of a throwaway joke from the first section, the fact that Dolbear, uh, through long association with the, with the Notion Club, right, has developed the ability, uh, to snooze throughout the sessions while still absorbing what's going on around him, right? Yeah, that just, it kind of sounds like, um, it's, it's, it sounds like a joke, right? Um, but, um, however, it immediately, in this section, it immediately ceases to be mere humor, right? To be mere uh, mere uh, witticism directed at Dolbear uh, and possibly through him at Havard, right? Who seems to be the 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 one most plainly um, uh, connected uh, to uh, to to Dolbear. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, Takako says this whole section reminds her of Lovecraft, especially Beyond the Wall of Sleep. You know. I think that would be a really interesting comparison. Um, thinking about Tolkien's dreaming stuff here uh, and comparing comparing this stuff, comparing the Notion Club paper stuff with uh, uh, with Lovecraft, I actually think would be very interesting. Um, anyway, okay, um, let's keep going. Let's keep going. All right. 
so in his opening there, he admits that he agrees with them completely, especially with Guildford, about the resistance to the traditional mechanism, right? He, too, has never found any space travel mechanism satisfactory. And apparently his whole experience begins with his desire to find an alternative, right? His desire to find a different mechanism that would work in story, right? But also, it turns out, in real life as well. Um, Okay, so Raymer paused and considered. Well, thinking about methods of getting across space, I was later rather attracted by what you may call the telepathic notion, merely as a literary device to begin with. I expect I got the idea from that old book you lent me, Jeremy, Last Men in London, or some name like that. I thought it worked pretty well, though it was too vague about the how. If I remember rightly, the Neptunians could lie in a trance and let their minds travel. Very good. But how does the mind travel through space or time while the body is static? And there was another weakness, as far as I was concerned. The method seemed to need rational creatures with minds at the other end. But I did not myself particularly want to see, or I should say at this stage perhaps write about, what Lewis called now. I wanted to see things and places on a grand scale. That was one thread. All right, so let's um, let's unpack this a little bit, right? Um, so at first he's looking for a literary explanation. Right? I want to find a different frame for my story. Right? I want to be able to tell stories like this. I want to be able to imagine space travel, right? But I, I like Guildford, I agree, spaceships are lame. So I don't want to do spaceships. Let's find another mechanisms. He's considering alternate mechanisms. And this one mechanism that he raises, which seems promising, is the telepathic method, right? So you can tell the story by framing it in a telepathic experience that a person on one planet has. They are able to travel mentally, like their minds are able to travel to another planet. And so we can get a, a story that way, right? But he's discontent. But so, so one thread here is that he, he, he's not satisfied with this, right? Um, for two reasons that he gives. One, it does, it's too vague about the how, right? How does the mind travel through space or time while the body is static? I mean, it's one thing to say like, okay, so they lie there and go into a trance and their minds connect to minds on another planet and, uh, and they, so they can experience this other planet. Yeah, okay, but that's just hand-waving, right? I mean, it's just being like, okay, and somehow the connection occurs, and they see these other things. And he's that's not enough of an explanation. So notice, there is a desire, even within, even as a literary framework, for a satisfactory machine. Remember what we talked about last week, about the primary world and the secondary world, right? Um, Raymer is here, on the one hand, saying uh, that, you know, he's beginning by saying, he could not infe- invest secondary belief in this because it was not, like Nicholas Guildford, it was not sufficiently connected with the primary world, right? Um, he found himself still wanting more answers. It didn't explain how this kind of thing worked, right? Um, so we see that same dynamic there. He wants to understand the machine, the mechanism, better. Now, let me... Um, uh, nomenclature clarification. Um, 
they use uh, he uses Reimer uses the word machine in both a literal sense, meaning like a machine, right, that one builds. And he uses it in a literary sense, like a literary machine is like a technique that you use in order to accomplish a narrative end, right? Um, so in this sense, of course, a spaceship is both kinds of machine. It is both an actual machine constructed physically, you know, a piece of engineering constructed by human beings in order to, to travel in space. It is also a literary machine. How do you get your characters from Earth to Mars? You know, you have to, you have to, there, there's some kind of machine you need to use to do that, right? And it turns out to be an actual machine in the case, for instance, of Out of the Silent Planet. Right. I'm going to use the word mechanism for the literary sense. Right. So I will try to be consistent in only calling an actual machine a machine. And when talking about the literary device, I will call that a mechanism. Okay. So just to try to prevent confusion a little bit here. Um, uh, so, Yana, oh, this was uh, this, the Notion Club Papers is written in like 44, 45. Um, yeah. Yeah. Exactly, Tony. Machine in that second sense is 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 a plot device. That's that's a synonym for machine, a, a literary machine in that sense. Yes, exactly. Um, but I agree, Takako. Tolkien does seem to enjoy the like the wordplay, right? When your machine is 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 a machine, right? Um, but um, but anyway, so I'm I'm gonna try instead of playing on words, I'm gonna try to clarify right the terms there. All right. Anyway, okay. So here is Raymer, the writer. Right, science fiction interested Raymer, who wants to write a science fiction story about exploring other words, is looking for a better mechanism to get his protagonist to a distant planet. Right, and so he's interested in this telepathic notion, this mental travel. Right, that that's a good way because you know the the machines are lame. He agrees with Guildford, the literal machine, you know, the space travel machines are lame. So a better mechanism is this telepathic travel. But notice the second issue that he has here. The first is that he, it's not explained enough. It doesn't give him enough meat, right? It doesn't give him enough substance to invest the kind of secondary belief that he wants to invest in it. But the second reason is that it, it presupposes, the telepathic method presupposes a connection from mind to mind, right? There has to be another now, another rational creature on the other end of the line. The only reason these Neptunians in this other story uh, could connect with a distant planet is that there were other, like there were earthlings, right, that they were able to connect with, right? So it's interesting that Raymer, that's not Raymer's interest, right? He says that this, so one of the reasons that he discarded the purely telepathic mechanism as a space and time travel mechanism is that he wants to see things and places on a grand scale. He doesn't just want to be limited to contacting the minds of other rational creatures. This doesn't, it, this, this mechanism, right, isn't to be merely a communication mechanism, right? It needs to be a mech, in order to satisfy Raymer as a writer, it needs to be more pure, it needs to be more broadly applicable, right? More broadly a tool for exploration in addition to contact in addition to communication right um yeah yeah um yeah good okay so yeah he wants windows on his mind ship yeah he wants to be able not just to establish 
like a two-way connection. He, 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 he doesn't just want to do this kind of, you know, I don't know what, this like... He doesn't just want to FaceTime with aliens, right? He wants to be able to explore... In, with his own mind, in his own mind, right in his own persona, he like in the persona of his protagonist, he wants his protagonist to be able to explore the world, even if there, even an uninhabited world, right? Because of course, at the very least, even if there were some way in which you could establish this telepathic connection with another rational being and then explore freely, right? Um, you know, go into go into exploratory mode and and just travel around the countryside. Um, you you couldn't do it at all with a non-populated planet right um but um yeah uh, Jana, i apologize uh there's a bunch of your questions that i'm skipping over because we talked about them last week uh so about space travel and stuff like this spaceships and everything we talked about that a lot last week and i don't want to lose too much time going over that again so i apologize i'm not trying to uh pass over your your comments but just i, I just as i say i don't want to repeat too much um anyway so so that's one thing, right? So that's one. So we see Raymer, the writer, looking for a mechanism and rejecting it for these reasons as insufficient to what he wants from his story. But notice, already kind of creeping in, um, already uh, um, uh, at work here, is the fact that there's 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 more. This is more than just a narrative mechanism that he's looking for, right? Um, Notice how he says things like uh, merely as a literary device to begin with, right? That's where it started. But for Raymer, storytelling was like the gateway drug to actual space travel himself, right? So it began by considering of a mechanism, right? Uh, a literary mechanism. And it became an exploration in his own person of these actual techniques, Right. So notice by the time we get to the end, even of just this paragraph, right, when he's saying, um, no, notice how the transition happens. Right. First, he says merely as a literary device to begin with. Then he says, but I did not myself particularly want to see or I should say at this stage, perhaps write about what Lewis called now. Right. Um, I should say, really, it was still about writing, but we can see already him, his own personal desires creeping in there. And then even in the next sentence, I wanted to see things and places on a grand scale. Oh, in a story, presumably, right? But we can already see the way in which that desire is already well past, you know, merely spilling out into his own perspective and into his own, and, you know, uh, sort of running into his own desires here, right? Okay. Um, Two other quick, th well, I don't know if they're quick, two other things. Uh, Tony's asking about the capitalization of uh, space and time. Um, I don't know that I can, ex you know, put my finger on the full significance of that other than to say, um, I get, Tony, the primary impression that that gives me here is that when he says capital space and capital time, very good, but how does the mind travel through space or time, right? Is deliberately to invoke... He is deliberately invoking the, like, everything associated with the, con with the phrases space travel and time travel, right? Um, 
he wants us to be thinking, Raymer wants us to be thinking about space travel stories and time travel stories. Um, so he's not just, if, if, if those were not capitalized, right, how does the mind travel through space or time? It does less to evoke, like, the genres, right, which I think is what he's primarily evoking there. That's how I would primarily understand that. The other thing that I would point to, thinking about the Notion Club papers in the context of the Lost Road, right, which, of course, is, is one of the, the primary uh, foregoer. Not only is he sort of returning here, in a sense, developing further, much further, the, some of the kinds of mechanisms that he was working with in his time travel story in The Lost Road before. Um, so there, there are kind of a couple things that are, that are going on that I want to make sure to draw our attention to, because it seems pretty important, right? One is that he uh, is altering significantly the mechanism, but because, of course, Raymer, here Raymer seems to be speaking for Tolkien in the sense that Tolkien himself, as a writer in this very story, is doing what Raymer talks about doing in his own stories. Namely, and we saw this, this was true back in The Lost Road as well, Tolkien set out to write a time travel story, but he was immediately dissatisfied. He did not want to have a hokey machine like H.G. Wells' hokey time machine. Tolkien has been on record a couple of times in this story and earlier and in other places on like how lame he thinks the time machine, the actual machine itself in H.G. Wells' story is, right? He loves the time travel. He loves what H.G. Wells does with time travel in the, in, in the book, The Time Machine. But he hates the machine itself, right? So we already saw in The Lost Road, Tolkien thinking about what is a completely different mechanism. Forget a time machine. Forget the clunky time machine that H.G. Wells has. Forget a blue police box. We want a different, a totally different, I, I, I want to invent a completely different mechanism for traveling in time, right? Um, and so in The Lost Road, we see him beginning to think about that. He's still thinking about that, and we see him thinking, uh, talking much more explicitly about that by introducing this level of fiction, right? The Lost Road was not meta-narrative, right? It was just a narrative. This is a science fiction writer talking about the kind of science fiction that he is in this, uh, the, a story of, right? He's, instead of writing uh, works of science fiction, Raymer's instead enacting a work of science fiction. So, I mean, there's a, it's much more complex on a kind of a meta-narrative level, right, than The Lost Road was. Um, and we also see that his... Um, Tolkien's, that is, alternative mechanism, uh, time travel mechanism, has developed, right? The mechanism he was using back in The Lost Road seemed to be connected generally, in as far as we could see, because we didn't get that far in The Lost Road, or Tolkien didn't get that far in The Lost Road, seemed to be connected with reincarnation, right? The idea that these same two souls... Um, uh, kept coming back and back again in different generations, in different places, and the way in which through dreams, uh, you know, through sort of dreams and visions, and, you know, you could kind of go connect back uh, to those other experiences. And so that's how time travel was going to be happening. Um, as we will see, the mechanism is much more complicated in the Notion Club papers. But also, and this is, I, 
important to recall if we're if we're just remembering the lost road as a frame we can overlook the fact space and time right it is not just time travel that he's interested in he is he is he's no longer in that place with c.s lewis where c.s lewis was doing the space travel and he was doing the time travel that ship has sailed right c.s lewis's ship got published right and it's out of the silent planet that moment is gone for Tolkien, and instead he's now um, taking up a completely new project, which embraces both of those things, both space travel and time travel. So that's important to remember here as well, that um, Tolkien is writing a space travel story in the Notion Club papers. Something a lot of people don't know. I mean, like, you know, a lot of people, uh, a lot of Tolkien fans spend a lot of time reading Tolkien without ever even knowing that he sat down to write a science fiction space travel story, right? Um, so it's important to acknowledge that. Um, anyway, okay, okay. Um, with this in mind, let's look. So Raymer rejects this mechanism both as a literary mechanism and also as a method to accomplish space and time travel in real life, right? So, Raymer, what's plan B? Here's plan B. I mean moving not by memory or by calculation or by invention, as the waking mind can be said to move, but as a perceiver of the external, of something new that is not yet in the mind. For if you can see in other times than the time of dreaming what you never saw in waking life, so that it is not in your memory, seeing the future, for instance, would be a clear case, and it cannot reasonably be doubted that that occurs, then obviously there is a possibility of real first-hand seeing of what is not there, not where your body is. Not even your eyes, said frankly. Ah, said Raymer. That is, of course, a point. I shall come to that later. It is probably a case of translation, but leave it for a bit. I was thinking of dreaming chiefly, though I don't suppose the possibility is really limited to that state. Only, if you live in a never-ending racket of sense impressions, other more distant noises have to be very loud to be heard. And this movement, or transference of observation, it is clearly not limited to other time, it can occur in other space, or both. A dreamer is not confined to the events of other time occurring in his bedroom. Okay, so this, and for, let me apologize for the fact, choosing passages for this section was super hard. Like, it was really hard to just get, like, squeeze into slidable uh, sets of passages, because, I mean, this whole argument kind of builds on itself, and it's, uh, you know, anyway... It was hard, so I apologize if there are some things that are kind of uh, that are kind of choppy here. Um, but anyway, okay. He, Raymer's second. So the first thing was the telepathic connection, the mind-to-mind -mind telepathic connection. This theory that if you know people on one planet could establish a telepathic connection with people on another planet, that that could enable the mind, in some sense, to travel right, and therefore the mind to perceive. What was that? Through that telepathic connection, what actually was in another planet. And so therefore, if your mind is perceiving what is there, you have, in a sense, your body has not traveled, but you 
your perceptions have in fact, you are in fact perceiving what is on another planet. You have in fact, in that sense, traveled to another planet. But again, that's no good. It's no good because, first of all, how does it work? I mean, easy to say, right, that you establish a telepathic connection. But how does that, how does that happen? Um, and secondly, it requires a receiver on the other end. So we rejected that. What does he choose instead? What is the other alternative mechanism? And the answer is dreams. What the mind does in dreams. So in dreams, the mind travels, right? The mind does different stuff in dreams and what's going on with what the mind is doing in dreams. So he's talking about how the mind in dreams can move, right? Not by memory or by calculation or by invention. These are all, so these are all ways in which the waking mind can be said to move, like, cause you can travel in your mind, right? While you're awake, you can remember things. You can be daydreaming. You can be thinking back right, to something that happened on a previous occasion. And so in your mind, you're there, right? You're wherever you were last Tuesday that you're remembering, but your body is in one place and your mind is in another place. So in that sense, your mind can be said to move, your waking mind, right? By memory, by invention, right? You can be making up a story and your mind is there in this imagined world, right? In this invented world. By calculation, right? That is by, uh, by, by sort of projection, right? Um, not by invention. Uh, there, I think he's speaking of a, a sort of a more technical sense. Like if you are in the process of, uh, if you're saying to yourself something like, let me think what, you know, my mother is probably doing right now right? You might calculate, uh, you know, sort of think, here's what I think is happening. Here's what I think could be happening. Here's what I think will happen tomorrow, right? You're not inventing. You're not making stuff up, right? Um, you're calculating, but your mind is still somewhere else. It's not memory. It's not exactly invention either. It's by calculation. That's anyway how I understand that. There might be other ways to understand it too. These are all ways in which the waking mind can move, but dreaming minds, Raymer asserts, can move in other ways. A dreaming mind moves as a perceiver of the external. As a per- and by external, he means of something new that is not yet in the mind. So it's not like memory, right? Which is retaining something that you have seen, right? There is in your mind an image of that thing that you've already seen. The dreaming mind can perceive other things, which you never saw in waking life, so that it is not in your memory. He says a clear instance would be a dream in which you see the future. That would be a clear instance. And then he adds, casually, um, it cannot be reasonably doubted that that occurs. Nobody in the room objects to that, right? Okay, so we're accepting that. We're accepting that. All right, fine. So, um, uh, Seeing into the future would be a clear example of this. A dream of the future, which turns out to be a true dream of the future, is an example of how the mind can move. And again, this is different. It's not calculation, invention, or memory, right? The waking mind can't do this. It can calculate what is probably going to happen tomorrow. It can calculate what she's going to say if I say this, right? All that kind of thing, right, can be done by the waking mind. 
but actually to see the future, a future which comes true, is a kind of seeing, is a capacity of the dreaming mind and an illustration of the broader idea that he has, right? Of how to utilize dreams as a mechanism in story, but also possibly as a method of actual travel himself. Tarlonio says, just call it magic is so much simpler. Far too simple. <laughs> Far too simple, right? We know Tolkien's issues with magic, the word magic and the concept of magic. Um, remember, Raymer rejects the telepathic connection for the same reason, in a sense, that Guildford rejects faster than light travel. Because there's no substance there. It's just hand-waving, right? Just as the warp coil is hand-waving, as we discussed last time, right? Just, just like, trust us. You know, like, you have to accept the premise. Faster than light travel is possible, right? You don't understand why. We don't understand why. We're making up scientific terms, right, and throwing them out, uh, you know, like in those wonderful speeches that, you know, Star Trek engineers say, right? Um, but... Anyway, like, but, but we can move on, right? And again, I don't have any problem investing secondary belief in, you know, a Star Trek world. I'm like, warp coil, got it. I'm cool. Let's move forward. The TARDIS, great. Let's, let's do it. Um, we talked about both of those things last time. Uh, Raymer, neither Raymer nor Guildford are confident with that. That's not enough for either one of them, right? It has to be able to work. Um, uh, so, uh, <laughs> Curita says, you know, I've never been high, but whenever I talk or think about space and time travel for too long, I feel like I have been. I hear you, Curita. As I said, this, this whole section is challenging. But anyway, my point is, Torlonio, to say a better mechanism is magic, right? Remember, Guildford said he prefers an old-fashioned waving of the wizard's wand. Um, rather than making up a phony spaceship, which nobody believes in, he says, just give me a wizard and call it magic. That's preferable. Not because it's more believable, but because it's exactly the same thing, but kind of more honest, right? Instead of pretending to compromise with our desire to understand how this could happen, as, as those do who make up spaceships... Again, this is Guildford's argument, right? Just just be upfront about it. Just say, poof, in a puff of smoke, you're suddenly in another planet and have done, right? But to do that is merely to dodge this question. And Raymer and Guildford, and by extension, Tolkien, clearly have no interest in merely dodging this question. This is a very detailed uh, look into this. Um... Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Let's carry on. Where were we here? Um, seeing the future. Okay, so anyway, so the point is you're in dreams, if we accept the seeing into the future, and let's do this, right? So let's, let, us, let us invest this degree of secondary belief in this story so we can carry on, right? Um in this way, in dreams, your body can see firsthand what is not there, what is not where your body is. And frankly, jokes, right? 
you can see where your eyes aren't, right? Raymer says, okay, hang on, we'll come back to the eyes business, right? I was thinking of dreaming chiefly, though I don't suppose the possibility is really limited to the dreaming state. Um, so here he talks about, so we are continually bombarded by sense impressions, right? All of the information from our senses. There is, there are other noises. This is a metaphor, right? He's not just talking about sound. He's characterizing all sensory impressions, right? All the, the input from all five of our senses, he's, he is comparing metaphorically to a, to sound, right? To a cacophony of noise. And in that cacophony of noise, a distant sound, in order to hear that distant sound over that cacophony that surrounds us at all times, it has to be super loud, right? So whatever way in which we can perceive through whatever senses or whatever combination of senses, something else other than the senses, that the, 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 the things that are immediately surrounding us, normally that has to be really loud. This movement, this transference of observation to observe not the things that are actually providing data to our actual physical senses, but to perceive something which is remote. That's what travel in space and time would mean, right? Uh, by this mechanism. Um, that could be done by dreams. That, that would be movement, to be able to perceive those things, to be able to get past the sensory experiences surrounding you and your body, right? And to perceive things remotely that would be travel in time or travel in space. And he says, it's, so it's not just about other time, right? It's not just, and this is where we see him separating from the lost road, right? It's not just about dreaming of the future, right? It can also occur in other space. A dreamer is not confined to the events of other time occurring in his bedroom, right? If he can travel in time, he can travel in time beyond uh, his body, right? Like what his, what his, so it's not just about perceiving the sensory perceptions that would be bombarding your body or would have been bombarding your body if your body were in a different point in time in the place where it is, right? It's about, um, it's about space travel as well as time travel. Okay. All right. All right. Dreaming. Okay. Raymer says, you can get a sort of literary parallel. I think it is a pertinent one, actually. <clears throat> now, here, remember the history of the Lord of the Rings. I think it is a pertin pertinent one, actually, for I don't think literary invention or fancy is mixed up in all this by accident. So Raymer has just said, so remember Raymer started with literary invention, like trying to tell a story, wanting to tell a story and coming up with a good literary mechanism, right? And he's now transitioned into talking about actually doing this space and time travel through this same method, right? So notice how I'm trying to keep my terms straight, machine, mechanism, and method, or trying to use those consistently. Okay. Um, I keep pointing this out so that you remind me in case I screw that up and use it inconsistently. But anyway, okay. Um, but now he comes back and says, literary invention, it's not an accident that literary invention or fancy is mixed up in all this, right? There's, there is a way in which literary invention is connected. There's a real connection between what happens in literary invention and what happens in this kind of mental, dreaming, space and time travel. The two things are actually suggested, are actually connected, not um, 
not just parallel, not just metaphors for each other, right? So here's his, but, but here's his parallel. When you are writing a story, for instance, you can, if you're a vivid visualizer, as I am, and are clearly visualizing a scene, see two places at once. You can see, say, a field with a tree and sheep sheltering from the sun under it, and be looking around your room. You are really seeing both scenes, because you can recollect details later. Details of the waking scene not attended to, because you were abstracted, there's no doubt of that. I should as, as certainly add details of the inner scene blurred because you were to some extent distracted. Okay, so let's, let's, let's pause there for a second. If you are a vivid visualizer, you can see with your mental eye, right? Your mind can perceive clearly a scene, right? You are seeing something. This is by invention, right? He uses that word again, literary invention. Um, you can see this other scene. At the same time, your physical eyes are still seeing the room around you. You're not just closing your eyes like this, right? You, you can see, you know, your notebook or whatever you're writing in in front of you, your, 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 your laptop in the modern world, um, your bookcases, whatever it is that's in the room around you, right? And you're also in your your mind is also perceiving this other thing. So you can see these two places at once. There's a kind of uh, competition there, right? If a detail in the waking world, um, a detail in the waking world can distract you from the mental scene that you're inventing, right? And it will blur it when that does, right? That's distraction. The mental scene can abstract you, right, so that you don't see details in the room around you. That's easy. That happens all the time, right? How many times have you been totally unaware of something that happened in the room right around you because you've, your mind was somewhere else, right? Your mind is on this, is on this scene. A vivid visualizer, right? He says, Raymer says that he is a vivid visualizer, as far as my own visualizing goes, I've always been impressed by how often it seems independent of my will or planning mind at the moment. Often there is no trace of composing a scene or building it up. It comes before the mind's eye, as we say, in a way that is very similar to opening closed eyes on a completely waking view. I find it difficult, usually quite impossible, to alter these pictures to suit myself. That is my waking purpose. As a rule, I find it better, and in the end more right, to alter the story I'm trying to tell to suit the pictures. If the two really belong together, they don't always, of course, but in any case, on such occasions you are really seeing double, or simultaneously. You tend to associate the two views, inner and outer, through the juxtaposition of them, sorry, though the juxtaposition of them may be, usually is, their only connection. I still associate a view of a study I no longer possess and a pile of blue and yellow covered exam scripts, long burnt, I hope, with the opening scene of a book I wrote years ago, A Great Moraine, High Up in the Barren Mountains. So there can be an association between these two things, which often sticks, right? Um, by the way, my closest parallel to this, I don't have this experience of vivid visualization in making up stories that Tolkien does. 
Um, but you know what this makes me think of? And I bet many of you have had this experience too. Um, for my fellow audiobook listeners, how many times when you reread an audiobook that you have really loved, when you come to a particular moment in an audiobook, can you immediately picture where you were and what was surrounding you at the time you first listened to that book, right? And so create this kind of associate. I mean, I, there are, I mean, there are books that I'll be like, you know, this passage from this book will come up and I will always associate this passage with exit five on the New Jersey Turnpike, right? Because that's where I was, you know, passing exit five on the New Jersey Turnpike uh, when I, when I, when I read that, uh, that, you know, when I first heard that passage, I was seeing that, right? Uh, I was, I was, I was, that's what my waking eyes were seeing. Um, But of course, my mental vision was seeing the scene from the story, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Karita says, I tiled our shower while listening to Dracula. Oh, absolutely. No, Karita, I, could t- I have listened to the Dracula audiobook dozens and dozens of times, and I can still tell you exactly where I was on, on many, multiple chapters. I could tell you exactly where I was the very first time I listened to that book. Um, anyway, okay. But notice what Tolkien does in the first part. Notice what Raymer says in the first part of that paragraph. Right. Sound like anything? Sound, sound familiar at all? Often there is no trace of composing a scene or building it up. I've always been impressed by how often it seems independent of my will or planning mind at the moment. It comes before the mind's eye, in a way, as we say, that is very similar to opening closed eyes on a completely waking view. It's doesn't feel like I'm inventing it. It feels like I'm discovering it. Right? That's exactly what we have heard Tolkien say again and again and again about his stories. Right? Exactly, Mary. Just like when Tolkien says, I have to find out what happened. Not, I need to make up an ending to that story. I need to find out what happened. Right? And those times when, like, he's like the picture that he sees, he sees a horseman coming down the road behind the three hobbits, right? Bingo, Frodo, and Odo, obviously, right? You've got Bingo and Frodo and Odo, and there's a horseman coming down the road. And what happens? It's Gandalf, right? No, it's not Gandalf. Notice he says, um, I find it difficult, usually quite impossible, to alter these pictures to suit myself. That is, my waking purpose. So, there's a horseman coming down the road. His first plan, his waking purpose, is this is Gandalf, right? And the hobbits are going to surprise him. As a rule, I find it better, and in the end more right, to alter the story I'm trying to tell to suit the pictures. He realizes... No, that's not Gandalf. It's not a white horse. It's a black horse. It's a cloaked black figure on a black horse. And I don't know what it, who it is. I've got to learn what that picture means. In the end, it's more right. It's better. It's more right to alter the story to suit the pictures. So, don't try to force it to be Gandalf find out instead who this black-cloaked rider is, and you get the Lord of the Rings, right? Um, 
And yes, Tony, I agree. Tolkien's illustrations, Tolkien's paintings speak very clearly of what a vivid visualizer he is, as do the pages and pages and pages of landscape description in Tolkien's prose, right? Um, so what Tolkien is describing, what Tolkien is putting in Raymer's mouth here, this is one of these passages, which again, this passage never jumped out at me before, but having just done the history of the Lord of the Rings and reading this passage, I was like, holy cow, uh, whoa, <laughs> this sounds as autobiographical as the language bits in The Lost Road, right? Um, again, I want to be cautious about applying it, but this sounds exactly like what we have already seen of Tolkien's own process. But now remember the point that Raymer made at the beginning. It's a, it's a parallel. He's trying to explain a parallel. Right about how you can see two things at once. Right about how the mind can travel even while the body is the same. How you can perceive remote things at the same time that your physical senses are perceiving something else. So your physical senses are with your body, right, perceiving the things around you. Your mind is perceiving something remote, right? Um, but remember, he says it's it's not just a parallel. It's not just a metaphor. Um, I don't think literary invention is mixed up in all this by accident, he says. Okay. Um, let's keep going. Exactly, said Raymond. I don't remember exactly what he's saying exactly, too. For, of course, by this time, I was really thinking more about traveling myself than writing a travel story. But I didn't want to die. Right, so he was thinking about how, like, of course, the mind goes elsewhere when you die, right? And he's like, ah, that that didn't seem like a great me a great method, right? I didn't want to die, and I thought that all I could do was to refine my observation of other things that have moved and will move, to inspect the history of things whose paths have, at some point of time and space, crossed the path of my body. The mind uses the memory of its body. Could it use other memories, rather, or rather, records? What kind of record of past events and forms could there be? In the time sequence, the disintegration of a form destroys the memory, or the special record, of the history of that form, unless it has got into a mind first. The fragments, right down to the smallest units, no doubt preserve the record of their own particular history, and that may include some of the history of the combinations that they've entered into. But take a haunted house, for instance. Take a house, interrupted Jeremy. All houses are haunted. What does this make you think of? A couple different things here. Okay. Um, let me start with my last question. What does this make you think of? Think about Legolas and Holland, right? As Legolas passes through Eregion. Think about those spirits resident in what we are wont to call inanimate things in the world of the Lord of the Rings, right? Think of Legolas's comment about the stones remembering the elves, right, that lived there. The trees and the grass 
Oh, not so many trees. But anyway, the grass doesn't remember, right? Only the stones remember, right? Raymer's discussion here, potentially, right, could be understood as a kind of explanation for that mechanism. Why? Why doesn't the grass remember the El, the, the, the Noldor of Eregion, right? Because um, in the time sequence, the disintegration of a form destroys the memory or the special record of the history of that form. The trees and grass that were around that knew the elves, right, who retained some kind of memory of their interaction with the elves, have all long since been destroyed. Only the stones still remain. And the stones remember how they were built by the elves, how they were delved by the elves. Exactly, the grass is too short-lived, Mary. That's exactly it, right? So, um... Uh, exactly. So, Veronica, that this that, that theory, that theory of residual hauntings, the memories of stones, bricks, and physical structures, is exactly where he's going with the haunted house, right? Now, he's going to argue that a haunted house, which is haunted by the memories of the things that was in it, is going to cease to be a haunted house. It's going to cease when it ceases to be a house, right? If you pull it all to bits um, and put it back together again, rebuild it with the same, take those same exact materials and build them together into another house it's no longer going to retain the same memories because what it is, like the individual elements, like the bricks used to make that make the house, the bricks might have a memory themselves, but it won't be the memory of the house because the house, the corporate entity, what those things combine to make has been destroyed, is no longer there, right? The memory of the brick might remain, but it won't be the same as the memory of the house because the house has a different, separate kind of identity, kind of memory, right? Okay, so... Things can retain histories, can retain memories. So notice what he's talking about. He's talking about, remember, perceiving distant things, like the mind perceiving things that are not immediately surrounding it, right? Um, Just as, you know, hearing something distant uh, uh, through or despite the cacophony of sense impressions that immediately surrounds you, right? So the mind being able to connect when I'm closing my eyes while I do this, right? Because it's about um, being able to ignore the input that's directly to the body and to be able to perceive the much fainter input, right, from these other things, right? Okay. Um... I thought that all I could do was to refine my observation of other things. That's what he's talking about, right? Other things that have moved and will move. So, so how can I do this? How can I move? How can I get my mind to move in time? How can I connect to other times without there being another now there, right? What is the mechanism that would really work? Refining his observation so that he can perceive right, so that he can receive, perhaps would be better to say, so that he can receive the record, the memories of these other objects. If this object has traveled places and been places, right, if I can be, if, if, if at some point in time 
they cross the path of my body. So, like, if I'm there next to a rock, like Legolas in Holland, right? Legolas passes through Holland, and there he and those rocks are there in the same place at the same time, right? Since they're there at the same time, Legolas can listen to them. And he can, by listening carefully beyond his immediate sense perceptions, he can pick up on what they themselves have observed. He can hear their story. And in doing that, he can come, his own mind can perceive, can come into contact with the Noldor, right? Dimly, indistinctly, Legolas can have a time travel episode. Legolas is traveling in time, in that his mind is traveling in time, right? As he is listening to the memories of the stones of Holland. Right? Okay. <laughs> I hope you guys are with me. This is really hard, right? Um, this is really hard. And I'm trying to stay really focused on the text. You'll notice that I'm... Uh, I am deliberately avoiding any vocabulary that the text is not using. So, like, you know, Tony, for instance, you were talking about the question, you know, like the, the, the relation between this and the concept of astral pro- projection. I am not going there, not because I'm rejecting any connection, but because that is not used, like that term is not used in the text, right? Uh, so I am, I am, I am trying, I am staying, I'm sticking with the vocab, I'm, I'm trying to stick rigidly to the vocabulary of the text as much as I can. Right. Um, okay. Okay. Let's keep going. So how would this help us to travel in space and time? Ah. A meteorite. But all the time, of course, I wanted to get off the Earth. That's how I got the notion of studying a meteorite, instead of mooning about with houses, ruins, trees, boulders, and all sorts of other things. There's a very large meteorite in a park, Gunthorpe Park, Gunthorpe Park in Matfield, where I lived as a boy, after we came back from abroad. Even then it had a strange fascination for me. I wondered if it could have come from Malakendra. From Mars, he means. But of course he uses C.S. Lewis's term for Mars, Malakendra. Which Lewis, of course, tells us within the story of Out of the Silent Planet, that's the real name, right, of Mars. That's what the residents call it. Um, uh, anyway, okay. I wondered if, if it could have come from Malakandra. I took to hobnobbing with it again, in the vakes, the vacations. Indeed, I made myself ridiculous and an object of suspicion. I wanted to visit the stone alone at night to lessen the distractions, but I was not allowed to. Closing hours were closing hours, so I gave that up. It seemed to be quite without results. So the poor old stone was left all alone, said Loudham. Yes, said Raymer, it was. It is a very long way indeed from home, and it is very lonely. That is, there is a great loneliness in it for a perceiver to perceive, and I got a very heavy dose of it. In fact, I can't bear to look at such things now, for I found, about the end of the long vake two years ago, after my final visit, that there had been results. It had evidently taken some time to digest them, and even partially translate them. But that is how I first got away, out beyond the sphere of the moon, and very much further. Okay, so... Um, okay. So the mechanism, 
what is the mechanism, right? He was discontented. Raymer was disconnected with the telepathic method because it didn't say enough about how. How do you lie down on Neptune and create a telepathic connection with somebody on Earth, right? How does that work? Here is his, you know, so this is giving us the answer to this. He's been building up to this answer to this question. And the answer is, how, how how, how is the mind enabled to travel? By perceiving things that are really there. By perceiving the memories and associations of physical objects which retain those memories. If you can commune with a, a stone, right, you can, your mind can connect to, can travel with, can perceive, and therefore travel to the places and times that the stone has been to, right? And if it's a meteor, right, then you can, in principle, travel to, connect to, hear from, all of these other ways of thinking about it. You can, well, let's start more neutrally. You can receive the data, right? You can receive the impressions uh, of the stone. You can hear the stone tell its story, in a sense, metaphorically speaking, right? Now, you might ask, what does this have to do with dreaming? Wasn't dreaming the mechanism? We rejected telepathy with another now, and Raymer had instead decided that dreaming was the mechanism? And the answer is going to be, which is what we're getting to here, the dreaming mind, remember, is able to perceive things that the waking mind is able to do. It has forms of perception that the waking mind does not have. And so, in particular, what the waking mind is able to do is kind of process this stuff to connect with these things better. It is the dreaming mind that is able, it is through dreams that the mind is able to travel. Untrammeled by the waking rational mind, right, it is able to take these impressions that have been received, right, these perceptions that have been received from the meteorite and from other physical things and whatever else, those distant stimuli that are too faint to be heard by your waking senses, right? But if you can train yourself to try to receive them, they're there, right? They're, they are within your mind. Your mind has received them. Your waking mind might not be able to do much with them, might not be able to take that stuff and sort it into something which would be like travel, right? Your mind actually being able to see the landscape that this stone has once been in, right? If you're talking about a rock or a tree, seeing the times that the tree has seen. Um, you know, you're looking at a 400-year-old oak. You know, you're looking at an oak that, like, remembers Oliver Cromwell, right? You're not going to be able to see Oliver Cromwell with your waking mind, even if you have, you know, perceived the perceptions of that tree, right? But your dreaming mind, now your dreaming mind, might be able to sort all of that out, right? That's where dreaming comes in. So, okay. I found it all very disturbing. Um, that is, he's describing the kinds of dreams he started having, uh, what seems to be his dreaming mind working through the memories of the meteorite, right? Which were often things which were, surprise, surprise, not really very much like normal human experience. It didn't translate to like a human perspective narrative, right? And that's one of the things that I found really most um, 
interesting uh, about that, right? That here is Tolkien through Raymer, or Tolkien having Raymer interacting with using non-human uh, things, right? Per perceptions, memories, as his method of space and time travel, uh, as his mechanism for getting at that story, right? He's using that as, as his mechanism and follows through in the sense that he, the first thing Raymer gets is a completely inhuman perspective. It is, in fact, the memories of a meteorite from the point of view of him. The meteorite does not package its history and perceptions in a way that suits itself naturally to a human consciousness, right? It doesn't tell the story like a human might tell the story because it's not interested in the things that a human might be interested in. And so he get the first thing that his dreaming mind perceives is like the meteorite's view of the world, like what it was like to pass through the atmosphere of the earth and get burned away to a cinder, right? That's one of the things that the, that's, that's an experience that the meteorite retained, right? Um, and he doesn't like it. It was very disturbing. Right, not just because it was an unpleasant experience, but again, because he is, his mind is coming into contact with a non-human memory, you know, record of events. Not what I wanted, Raymer says, or at least not what I had hoped for. I saw anyway that it would take far too much of a mortal human life to get so accustomed to this kind of vehicle that one could use it properly or selectively at will. Remember he's been saying that there's translation involved? There's too much translation here, right? The, in order for the, the, the things he is receiving through the meteorite to become, to, to come out the other end essentially as travel for his mind, right? As a, a narrative that a human being can enter into in some sense, there's a lot of translation required. And Raymer says, with the meteorite, too much. Too much translation. Right? I gave it up. No doubt, when any degree of control was achieved, my mind could no would no longer have been limited to the particular vehicle or chunk of matter. The waking mind is not confined to the memories, heredity, or senses of its own normal vehicle, its body. It can use that as a platform to survey the surroundings from. When you are reviewing your own memories, right? The memories that are stored in your body, right? Stored in the gray matter inside your skull, right? You not only retain the memory of your body, you remember what you could perceive from your body, right? You had a view. Uh, so your memory includes not just your person, it, your, your, your memory is from the first person point of view, right? Your memory is of the landscape you were seeing on that day back last August, not just of like, you don't just see your own body back on that landscape in last August, right? So similarly, if you could manage it, right? If you could achieve a degree of control, if you could orient yourself, right, properly to the perspective, to the, uh, the, to the point of view of the meteorite, right? If you could attune yourself to it properly, you would not only see the meteorite, you would see what the meteorite could see, 
right? You could experience what the meteorite experienced, what could be experienced from the meteorite. If that translation were possible, if that degree of control could be attained, in theory, space and time travel would have been possible this way, right? Um, you could use that, the meteorite, as a platform to survey its surroundings. In theory, you could, in your mind, through your dreams, because there's only the dreaming mind really capable of processing all this, in your dreams, you could travel to Mars, if Mars is indeed where the meteorite came from, right? So probably it could, if it, uh, if it ever mastered another vehicle, it could survey in some fashion other things where the meteorite, say, came from, or things it had passed in its historical journey. But that second transference of observation would certainly be much more difficult than the first, and much more uncertain and inefficient. Do you see what he means by the second transference? The meteorite passed another meteorite. Two meteorites passing in space, right? The meteorite. Meteorite A, the meteorite from Matfield or wherever the town was, right? The Matfield meteorite would also perceive, it would receive the perceptions, the historical record of meteorite number two, right? And so, if you could attune your mind through your dreams to sorting through and translating into human comprehension, comprehensibility, I should say, the history, the story, the narrative, the life of the Matfield meteorite, you could also, indirectly, use its the Matfield meteorite's experience to parse the experience that it received from meteorite number two so that your mind could travel to where meteorite number two had come from as well, right? That's the second, if I'm understanding it properly, that is the second transference um, that uh, he's describing here and certainly would be more difficult as he says, right? Much less uncertain, much less, because you're getting this, you're translating this distantly perceived record of a brief and distantly perceived record, right? That A briefly encountered and distantly perceived record. So it would be harder and harder and with uh, less and less return, right? Okay. Still with me? <laughs> it's hard. I know. This is really challenging. Um, and again, I might be wrong about all, most or all of this. Who knows? Okay. At last he went on. Imagine an enormously long, vivid, and absorbing dream being shattered. Say, simultaneously by an explosion in the house, a blow on your body, and the sudden flinging back of dark curtains letting in a dazzling light. If all these things happen at once while you're sound asleep, right? You'd be like, blah, right? Suddenly bursting into multiple levels of sensation, wide awake, right? with the result that you come back with a rush to your waking life and have to recapture it and its connections, feeling for some time a shock and the color of dream emotions, like falling out of one world into another where you had once been but had forgotten it, right? So he's like, we've all had something like this experience where we're dreaming, we're deep in a dream world, and then all of a sudden, bam, we are like completely waked up by some kind of stimulus or multiple stimuli, right? And that sense of shock, that sense of disorientation, that sense of being overwhelmed, right, um, by this different world and still retaining some of the orientation of your dreaming world, right? Um, he says, 
imagine just like that in reverse where you fall into a dream from a waking state into a dream state and it feels like that just as you've been suddenly yanked out of the dream state and completely immersed forcibly immersed in this in the waking world right and massive stimuli from the waking world uh, and the disorientation of that moment right he says one day he had the reverse experience going from the waking world and plunging into the dream world with exactly that same kind of suddenness and extremity and uh, uh, cacophony of, of uh, experience. I was awake in bed, and I, fe- and I fell wide asleep, as suddenly and violently as the waker in my illustration. I dived slap through several le- levels and a whirl of shapes and scenes into a connected and remembered sequence. I could remember all the dreams I ever had of that sequence. At least, I remember that I could remember them while I was still there. Better than I can here remember a long sequence of events in waking life. So the in-dream memory was sharper than the waking memory of wake... The in-dream memory of the dream sequence is sharper than the waking memory of waking sequences. So remember how he said... This kind of the kind of travel that he's the kind of travel mechanism that he's describing would only be possible uh, in the dreaming. Only the dreaming mind would be capable of traveling this way because the dreaming mind can kind of process all these things, right? What he's describing here, this is the sum of those things. His dreaming mind had been working on all this. He'd been giving it all of this data, right? He'd been feeding it all this, to perceiving all of these things, training himself to perceive all of these things, to hear these distant sounds. Uh, over the cacophony of the sense impressions that surrounded him, right? And his dream mind has been sorting it all out. And now, bam, his dreaming mind puts it all together. And now the dreaming mind has formed a narrative, has formed a connected and remembered within the dream sequence. Remember how he said it's like translation? Remember how he said it is not just in parallel with the literary with literary invention, right? That forming of a narrative. Remember how he said it's, you know how when you're like picturing things, like when you're, when you're, you know, writing a story and you're seeing things, your, your picture, you know, these pictures come to you and they just kind of come to you and you can't sort of control them, right? They just sort of, it's like that. Except of course he's going to go on to say it's much more than just like that, right? He's going to go on to say, that's where those pictures come from. Right? When you have those pictures, when these pictures, I don't know, of maybe, uh, you know, a black horse with a black rider sniffing uh, down a path with hobbits hiding in the bushes comes to you, maybe you are, in a sense, perceiving it. It's not an invention. Or maybe, maybe that's not the picture you perceive. Maybe the picture that you perceive is a fawn with an umbrella in the snow, and the fawn carrying a bunch of brown paper-wrapped parcels. Maybe that's the picture that you have in your head. Um, And you don't know where it comes from or what it's about until you learn. Um, Okay. Where was I? 
Uh, right, okay. And the memory did not vanish when I woke up. That is, the dream memory didn't vanish. And it hasn't vanished. It has dimmed down to normal to about the same degree as w memory of waking life. So in waking life, he can still recall. He can't recall it more perfectly than he can recall waking memories, but about the same. It's edited. Blanks indicating lack of interest, some transitions cut, and so on. So it's imperfect. But my dream memories are no longer fragments, no longer like pictures about the size of my circle of vision with fixed eyes, surrounded with dark as they used to be, nearly always. They are wide and long and deep. I have visited many other sequences since then, and I can now remember a very great number of serious, free dreams, my deep dreams, since I first had any. He has recovered his own dream history as well, the deep dreams, the serious dreams, the free dreams, the dreams in the dreams which were his dreaming mind traveling, perceiving other things, using these other inputs, right, um, in order to perceive these other things. Now he can put these things together, right? Now he can see the pictures, but they're more—they're not just glimpses anymore. He he gets to some extent right imperfectly the whole story the whole narrative this is the sense in which Raymer has traveled to other worlds and other times he has traveled in both space and time through his dreams right not just i had a dream about it right but through this very complicated mechanism that we have been describing or this very complicated method of travel that he is describing okay so, he's asked, and I can't remember which one of them asks it. Um, he asks him two questions, uh, and one of them was like, "Can you go back there? Can you can you like review the dream, like rereading a book?" Asking if you can revisit that stuff is like asking me if I can will to see. Oh no, sorry. So right, let me contextualize here. He says it depends on the dream, right? Some of his dreams are just stuff, right? Random stuff, like. You know, when you are doing a chore all day long, right? Like, so, Karita, if the day that you retiled your uh, your shower, right, if you had a dream that night about tiling a shower, probably not a real significant dream, right? This is just your sleeping mind processing the, like, the things that it was receiving from your waking mind all day long, right? And Raymer discounts all that stuff. Um, there's a bunch of noise in dreams, Right, which are merely your dreaming mind dealing with stuff that's coming from your conscious mind, right? So he says. So when he says, "Can you his answer to the question, "Can you revisit dreams?" He first he starts with this clarification: deep dreams, yes; free dreams, the meaningful dreams, these dreams which are perceived narratives outside my own experience, yes; not the other stuff. So asking me if you can revisit that stuff, the waking mind stuff is like asking me if I can will to see, not make, rain tomorrow, or will, or will to be waked up again by two black cats fighting on the lawn. But if you're talking about serious dreams or visions, then it's like asking if I shall walk back up the road again last Tuesday. The dreams are, for your mind, events. So, can he have the same dream again? No. Just like you can't walk up the same road again last Tuesday. 
last Tuesday is never happening again. You can go back to the same road on a different day, right? You can remember in your mind walking up the road on Tuesday, but you can't walk up the road on Tuesday again. It's an event. It's a thing that happened, right? Um, and so his serious dreams, the visions are like that, right? They are events. They're not just, it's not a TV show that you can, you can queue up again. Um, the dreams are for your mind events. You can or might, waking desire has some effect, but not much, go back to the same places and times as a spectator. But the spectator will be the you of now, a later you, still anchored as you are, however remotely, to your body time clock here. But there are various complications. You can re-inspect your memories of previous inspections, for one thing, and that is as near to dreaming the same dream over again as you can get. The closest parallel is reading a book for a second time. For another thing, thought and invention go on in dreams. A lot of it. And of course you can go back to your own work and take it up again. You can go on with the story making, if that is what you were doing. Okay, so you can return to dreams and go on from them. You can't just go and have them again. Again, you can remember walking up the road last Tuesday, but you can't walk up the road last Tuesday again. Similarly, you can go back and sort of see the dream events again, but it's not the same thing as having them again. You won't be there again. You will be observing them from a new point of view again. Notice the last point. Notice the last point. By the way, Stephen, um, the early stuff that I was talking about, like about Karita tiling her shower, right? That very much fits in with medieval dream categories. That was, if I'm remembering correctly, an insomnium I was describing, what they would have categorized as an insomnium, um, which is an insignificant dream in which you just recapitulate what your waking mind was dealing with uh, in the previous day. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah. Anyway, Yana, um, you're right that reinspecting your memories in fact, changes the original memory. And Raymer himself here seems to be aware of the, the kind of... It's, I think it's one of the things he's sort of getting at here about the loss. Like, you can, you can reinspect the memory and you can reinspect your reinspections of the memories, but you can't just, you can't just be there again. You can't... Um, there's, a, there's, there's a lot lost there. Um, you can't ever just go back and just like you can you can remember it as clearly as you possibly can but you can't go back to last Tuesday and walk up the road again um, but notice this last point because this last point comes back to a point that is going to be again very interesting in thinking about Tolkien's own writing process in dreams the dreaming mind does not just passively perceive things that is one thing that happens. Invention also goes on in dreams. The dreaming mind also makes stories. There is a creative process that the dreaming mind itself also undertakes. So sometimes going back to the dream, revisiting the dream, picking up where a dream left off is like going back and continuing a story that you stopped writing earlier, right? Like a week ago or a year ago, right? Sometimes, because sometimes the vision, the dream, 
is not a perception of the outside world, a perception of something that is not your outside world, but some other outside world that you have, your dreaming mind has sorted together and perceived, right? Sometimes it's a, a story that your dreaming mind is writing. Okay. My mind, like many others I imagine, makes up stories, composes verse, or designs pictures out of what it has got already, when for some reason it hasn't at the moment a thirst to acquire more. Wait, Raymer, what does your mind do? Makes up stories, composes verse, or designs pictures. Hmm. Those are your mind's three favorite activities, huh? Raymer, is there anybody else we know who does all three of those things quite a lot? Make up stories, compose verse, uh, or design pictures. Okay, anyway. I fancy that all waking art draws a good deal on this sort of activity. Those scenes that come up complete and fixed that I spoke of before, for instance. Though some of, the, uh, though some of them, I believe, are visions of real places. Okay, so when, for some reason, you just see... A black horse with a black with a cloaked black rider sniffing around for hobbits, right? When that just kind of emerges, and like that's the picture, right? And you find that you can't alter it, or you'd best stop trying because it doesn't work real well. It doesn't work nearly as well. It's better just to run with it, right? When you perceive those things, there are two possible explanations for that. One is that what you are perceiving is part of a story that your your dreaming mind wrote. And that's bubbling through into your waking mind. The other option, it's a vision of a real place that your dreaming mind has perceived. The space and time travel. Your dreaming mind has performed some space and time travel. Your waking mind doesn't remember it. But you get but your dreaming mind feeds you a glimpse. Okay. Um that is the significance of these other stories of these, of discovering a story rather than inventing a story. And that strong feeling of hidden significance in remembered fragments. My experience now, though it is still very imperfect, certainly bears out my guess as far as my own dreams go. My significant fragments were actually often pages out of stories, made up in quieter dream levels, and by some chance remembered. Occasionally, they were bits of long visions of things not invented. Okay, so often he has had the experience of a fragmentary memory, a picture, right? A mental picture, like, you know, that, that pops into his mind. Um, and he has some strong association with it. It seems like it's really significant, but he doesn't know why. What He has to find out what's significant about it, right? Sometimes these have been pages out of stories. Stories written by his dreaming mind. Stories invented by his dreaming mind. Sometimes they were bits of long visions that his dreaming mind perceived. Things that are real. If long ago you'd either read or written a story and forgotten it, and then in an old drawer you came on a few torn pages of it, containing a passage that had some special function in the whole, even if it had no obvious point in isolation, I think you'd get very similar feelings of hidden significance 
of lost connections eluding you, and often of regret. Okay, what do you mean? Give us an illustration. A row of dark houses on the right, going up a slight slope. Their backs had little gardens or yards fenced with hedges and a narrow path behind them. It was miserably dark and gloomy. Not a light in the houses, not a star, no moon. He was going up the path for no particular reason, in a heavy, aimless mood. Near the top of the slope he heard a noise. A door had opened at the back of one of the houses, or it had closed. He was startled and apprehensive. He stood still. End of fragment. Okay, now one of the things he's pointing to here is like, this is the picture, right? This is the picture that's in his mind, and he can't explain it, and he doesn't understand it. But here's what's especially weird about it. So he had this picture in his head, right, which he didn't get. He didn't know the whole story. But the weird thing was that he had this association. Like, when he woke up from the dream in which he saw this fragment, he was really happy. Like, there's nothing intrinsically in this fragment by itself to suggest joy and amazing happiness. But he knows the significance of this, of this picture is happiness. And he's like, why? Wherein lies the joy? This doesn't sound joyful. It doesn't look joyful. There's no, no matter how I scrutinize it, I can't find joy there. So what's the explanation? Notice his impulse, Raymer's in, impulse, is not to do a symbolic analysis, right? Like, let me allegorize it in order to find how it amounts to joy. That is not his impulse. His impulse is to say, it only makes sense when I'm able to put it into its larger narrative frame, when I learn the whole story, of which that's, that was part of a story that my dreaming mind made up. Eventually, I got access to the whole story. The story that scene came out of is known to me now, and it's not very interesting. Apparently, it's one I made up years ago, somewhere in the 50s, at a time when, while awake, I wrote lots of things of the sort. I won't bother you with it all. It had a long and complicated plot, mainly dealing with the Six Years' War, of course, what we know as World War II, but it wasn't very original, nor very good of its kind. All that matters at the moment is that this scene came just before a lover's reunion, beyond the hope of either the man or the woman. On hearing the noise, he halted, with a premonition that something was going to happen. The woman came out of the door, but he did not recognize her till she spoke to him at the gate. If he hadn't halted, they would have missed one another, probably forever. The plot, of course, explained how they both came to be there, and neither of them, uh, and neither of them had been before. But that doesn't matter now. The interesting thing is that the remembered fragment, for some reason, ended with the sound of the door and the halting but the emotion left over was due to the part of the story immediately following, which was not remembered pictorially at all. It wasn't part of the fragment. But there was no trace of the emotions of still later parts of the story, which did not finally have a happy ending. So he gets a picture, and he knows this picture is significant. He knows it's associated with joy. What is the true meaning of this picture? Okay, two things here, and we'll finish after this. There's more, but we're already deep enough, and we're not going to come to the end. Anyhow, as I said at the beginning, so we'll stop after this. Let me just kind of try to point out the take-home messages here. First, I see a fragmentary picture 
in my mind's eye, right? My dreaming mind has fed me this, and I know it has a certain significance. That is joy, right? What does it mean when you say to find out the meaning, the significance of that picture? What does that mean, right? The first thing I would emphasize, it doesn't mean that it is significant with a capital S, right? That it is important, that it is archetypal, that it is mythic, right? It doesn't mean that this is a key element in a super important story, that it reveals some secret, right? Or perceives some truth. No, it has a significance, but not that kind of significance. It has a significance in that it is part of a story, right? And that story went in a particular direction, right? There is an answer to the question, why is happiness associated with this moment, right? It doesn't make any sense. Well, it does if you read the whole story. If you read the whole story, you'd know this was a, there was about to be a lover's reunion, beyond the hope of either one of them. I, you know, there's, it's, it's like a eucatastrophic moment, right, for the protagonist of this scene. That's why it's associated with happiness, because happiness immediately follows. But notice the two... So it's significant in one sense, but it is not significant. There are two other arguably more important senses in which it is not significant. It is significant because it is part of a larger story. There is more to the narrative, which you can learn. And that sense of emotional significance, that correlation between joy and this scene points to the fact that there is more narrative, that there's more story there. If you knew the story, you'd understand why happiness is associated with this. That is the sense in which it is significant. But there are two bigger ways in which it doesn't mean it is significant. First, it doesn't mean that it it is not significant in the sense of telling us the essence of the story, right? The, the joy that lay behind this scene tells us, like, the... He's like, no, it wasn't a happy story. It was not have a happy ending, Right? The little you catastrophe that was happening here at the end of the day. And it doesn't say it doesn't matter, but it's like that wasn't the point of the story. It was this wasn't the conclusion of the story. A story didn't have a happy ending, in fact. Right. So the the fact that knowing the whole story helped you understand the so you perceived a significance of this scene. But the significance doesn't mean you've 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 got the heart of the story. You have the whole essence. It's not that kind of significance. It is also not significant in an even bigger and broader sense. That is, when he learned the whole story, he found out, actually, this story kind of sucked. Actually, I didn't like this story. I thought this story was a bad story. So it's not important. Like, it's, it's not like, ah, in this picture, I woke with this picture, and this picture must be of, like, you know, like, if only I could recapture this story, I would have this wonderful masterpiece. Like, I was given the key to this amazing story that I will never recover. Nah, nah, that wasn't it, right? It wasn't an amazing story. And it wasn't the key to the mundane story that it truly was. But there was significance there. So, so what do we take from this? You know what? One of the things we take from this is it is the dreaming mind that perceives Right? It is the dreaming mind 
that is able to do the space and time travel, right? But there is a, another layer of translation, right? The waking mind has to interact with this. And um, there are things to be discovered. There are things that the, the dreaming mind sees lots of things, but it doesn't like sort them, you know? Um, the dreaming mind, you know, so his dreaming mind made up this story. His dreaming mind invented this story. This is a story composed by his dreaming mind. But it wasn't a very good story composed by his dreaming mind because his dreaming mind is, at the end of the day, not a literary genius, you know? Well, he's not an infallible literary genius. Sometimes his mind perceives real things, but not all the time. Um, so the way in which this gives us a glimpse not only of the power of the dreaming mind, but the limitations of the dreaming mind and the way in which you have to be careful in how your waking mind is relating to the dreaming mind. You can't draw rash conclusions about like the significance of things because sometimes it's not like that. Hmm. Okay. So this is at least a good start in trying to understand the literary mechanism that Raymer is exploring here and that Tolkien is exploring here. This is, you know, Tolkien's mechanism uh, for space and time travel not involving spaceships or TARDISes, right? Um, and we're beginning to see how this works. Let me remind you here at the end where we're going to. We are getting to Numenor eventually. <laughs> we're going to end up in Numenor. So... Let us recall that as we are following Tolkien down the very complicated and difficult to follow paths of Raymer's metaphysical explorations here, right? Um, but also, of course, I urge you to remember these autobiographical things which seem to be welling to the surface here. Ways in which Tolkien is, at least within this fictional narrative, right? trying to contextualize, recalling and sort of uh, at least fictionally characterizing the experiences that he himself seems to have as an author. And that's going to get ratcheted up a step when he starts talking about the dream of the green wave. Remember that the dream, the recurring dream of a green wave, a towering green wave sweeping across a landscape catastrophically sweeping across a landscape is a recurring dream that Tolkien himself actually had. That is autobiography. He has stated that that was autobiography. And that his son, before they talked to each other about it, also had the same recurring dream. Exactly. Mary was just recalling that same thing. Um, the connection between him having the dream and his son having the dream helps to give us a window into the mechanism that he was beginning to employ in The Lost Road. Here, it's a lot more complicated than that, but we'll still see, uh, we'll still see some of that kind of thing. Okay. Good? We good so far? We'll try to pick this up next week. Fortunately, I will be here next week. I'll be away the week after, so I'm hoping to come to a better stopping place than this at the end of next class uh, before I'm going to be away for a week. But uh, we'll see what we can do. Thank you, everybody, for your patience today. Um, I hope that this helped. Uh, and again, I am not... Uh, I, I want to, again, uh, 
be cautious about my own assertions here. I, there are many things here that I might still be misunderstanding. I might not have perfectly followed Raymer's description and Tolkien's thought, but that's the best I can give you about what's going on here so far. All right. Thank you, everybody. See you guys next week. We shall pick up with Raymer again next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.